Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a Specialist GP, and today I'm fortunate to have Dr Sue Bagshaw with me to discuss the HEADS assessment, how to do a HEADS assessment in a young person in a 15-minute consultation or less. Sue is a primary care doctor specialising in adolescent and youth health at a one-stop community youth health centre for young people aged 10 to 25 years, which she helped to set up. She's a senior lecturer in adolescent health at the Department of Paediatrics at Christchurch Medical School. She spent 20 years working at family planning and 10 years in the methadone program in Christchurch. Thank you, Sue, for joining me again today. We're talking about the HEADS assessment and dealing with young people in our consultation room. So not all our listeners will be familiar with the HEADS assessment. So I wonder if you can just tell us about this assessment tool and what its purpose is. Sure. It was actually put together by an adolescent health doctor in the States called Henry Borman in, I think, late 80s or maybe earlier. And then it was developed by a couple of guys in the States, Golden Ringer and I can never remember his other name. And then various people have developed it since. I must have to admit I've added a few letters. And really, I teach the fifth-year medical students in Christchurch, and so they all learn to do heads sort of by rote in terms of different questions for the different letters. But really, to be honest, it's you never should use it like that. I see heads as a framework. As I say, it was put together by doctors working with their adolescent patients, but I actually have taught it to youth workers, teachers, all sorts of people, and I see it as an engagement tool. It's there to help you engage with your patient, and to be honest, I think it's relevant to all ages. You just change the kind of question you ask. So it's a really helpful tool to engage. It's a really helpful tool to find out the context of the presenting complaint. And we know that half the prescriptions we write don't even get filled. And the ones that get filled, half of them aren't actually followed correctly. But if you know the context of your patient, you know where they're coming from, what kind of backgrounds they've got, you're much more likely to be able to get across to them what you're giving them medication for, how to take it. And they're going to listen better because you've taken care to find out more about them. So for me, for say, a, a, we'll talk about adolescent patient. Um, First of all, I think you need to remember they haven't been trained. You know, our adult patients have been trained by us to ask the, answer the question we've asked them in the way we want them to answer it. Even with adults, you have to be careful of the ones who want to please you and just say yes and will do and all that kind of stuff, just because they like you and they want to make you feel good, which is lovely of them, but not all that helpful. Um, and then I think you need to remember like their cognitive development in terms of their ability to grasp abstract concepts, their ability to be aware of complex thinking and complex choices, and try and frame questions so they're easy to ask. I'm sure everybody listening has had the experience of an answer that says, dunno. And when I'm teaching, usually I go around the room asking for, you know, what does dunno mean? And we often come up with 10 different meanings for, for dunno, all the way from, I really don't know, through to, you've asked me three questions in one, I don't know which one you want me to answer. Or I've got four answers to that question because it's an opinion asking question and I don't know which one you want me to tell you. 
So I think really important when you're doing heads is A, make sure it's a framework in your head rather than a tick box tool that you work your way through. And secondly, to ask the questions in a way that demands a description, not an opinion. Try and avoid the word why. I think even adults can't answer the question why. Try and frame it as how come. If you can say, how come you got to did this or that happened, then what you're asking for is a, a description of the journey towards that situation happening, as opposed to why it happened. Nobody knows why it happened. So I think reframing and saying how come is really helpful. And also try and frame your questions so that it demands a description. So don't say, what's home like? Who lives with you at home? Do people, do your mum and dad or whoever the adults are in the house shout at each other? Do they shout at you? Do they hit each other? Do they hit you? So it's really nice, concrete, descriptive stuff rather than opinions. What's your favourite subjects at school? Those kind of things rather than how's school going. When they're a bit older, they've got a bit more abstract thought and you've trained them up to know what kind of things you want them to, tell, you know, to learn about because you're asking about the atmosphere at home or at school. But they're, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about what's happened at school and the concrete stuff. So if you can, as they get older and you, learn and you, you, you get to know them, then you can realize where they're at in their cognitive development and they can, add, you know, can deal with more abstract questions and answers. But at first, I think definitely descriptions and concrete stuff and all about now rather than anything further ahead than two or three months, especially at the younger age group. So I think that's really important. And then as you listen to the answers, and that's why heads in the frame is chatty stuff first, getting to know your stuff. It's also a great rescuer. So if you get stuck and you get to know, you can go on to another subject. And until you find one that they are actually able to talk about and they're keen to talk about because they like it. And so you're doing that engagement stuff, exploring what's important to them. And that's really important part of HEADS. The other way that you need to think about it is how can I relate the framework and the context stuff to the presenting complaint? So say they come for an asthma inhaler. Well, you're not going to say how's home or who lives with you at home is your first question. You're going to be asking about the asthma. So you're going to be asking how often they use their inhaler, all the medical questions in terms of how often they use it, is it controlling them, do they have any asthma attacks, how long have they had the asthma, and all those kind of things. And then how do you relate that to find out more about home? So one suggestion might be, well, how's your asthma going, and are you using your inhaler heaps, and are you finding you have to use the blue one lot, so you're on an orange one or purple one or whatever one you can describe. And then say, does anybody else at home have asthma? Is home dry? Is it warm? Is anybody at home, or who are you living with at home? Do they smoke? Whoever it is they're described as living with them. Do they smoke? Do you smoke? Do you smoke nicotine? Do you smoke cannabis? And then make it a conversation. So the answer they give you becomes the next question to extend the answer they've given you. So if they say, yes, mum and dad are living at home. Okay, do either of them smoke? And often be, be ready to say the reason why you're asking the question. Because they don't know why you're asking the question. They haven't, they haven't been trained by you to know that smoking is a frequently asked question. So 
I'm asking this because smoking can make it worse. Do you smoke? Have you noticed how it makes your asthma worse? Um, do you do any sport? Do you do any early morning sport? We have to go in the cold. Does that make does exercise like sport make it worse? So you're relating all these contextual questions to the presenting complaint. So you're finding out about home and you're finding out about parenting style is quite important. So are they authoritarian type parents? Are they just they tell you what to do the whole time? Or do they negotiate? Do they have clear boundaries? Or do they let you do whatever you want? Are they never there? Are they there all the time or they're never there? And then you're wanting to find out about what they're doing during the day. So you don't have to go through school, employment, education, eating, exercise, but you do really need to know how they're spending their time. So are you working? Are you in training? Are you at school? How many hours do you do? And then how many hours do you spend on screen? Do you have to do a lot of hours on screen at school or at work? How do you find, what do you do as well as spending time on screen? What other things do you like doing? And there you've got H-E-E, well, one of these we have to come back to in terms of eating, but you can actually put that into family. So you're living in a flat, who cooks in the flat? Do you all cook your own meals or do you share? What kind of food do you eat? Do you eat once a day, three times a day? Who does the shopping? All in that first few five minutes. So you're trying to relate it to the presenting complaint because you know that if you come with asthma or low mood, it really really actually helps your condition if you eat healthy stuff. And they all know what healthy stuff is. The young people today have been brainwashed since kindy that you eat the fruit and vegetables. <laughs> um, so you don't have to go on about healthy food. They know it. So it's more about asking them what they are eating and how could they do better and what steps could they take. You're coming into most racial interviewing then rather than screening, which is what HEDS is really, it's the screening. And what you're doing is looking for red flags. So if they say, oh, we just eat what's in the cupboard, maybe it's some noodles, then you're going to be asking about the healthy food. But if they say, oh, yeah, we just have takeaways, you're going to be asking about what the relationship, well, don't ask what's your relationship with food because those look at you gone out. <laughs> um, but more like, actually, one of the students I had just recently said, have you lost or gained weight lately and has that made you worry? I thought that was a really lovely, broad question because losing or gaining weight is nice and concrete, but has that made you worry about it gives you a whole heap of different answers in terms of what their relationship with food is. So I thought that was a great way of asking. I love doing the heads assessment teaching because I learn a different way of asking questions each time. But there you go. You've got your all those kind of contextual things right there in five minutes because you're relating it to the presenting complaint and they feel like you're dealing with their presenting complaint at the same time. But if they've, say, presented with depression, then you start with that. So how long have you, is it a low mood? How does it affect you? Have you lost your enjoyment in life? Um, did you used to do stuff? What did you used to do that you don't do now? And there's your activities right there. Um, what do you do to cheer yourself up? Do you use alcohol, other drugs? Do you, sometimes people feel better when they pray. Have you got any idea of something bigger than yourself that you find helpful? Some people feel better when they talk to people. Have you got any friends you can talk to? Who's your support people? Do you ever feel like you want to harm yourself? Have you ever felt that you want to kill yourself? Because um, some people do get those thoughts. And I wonder if you've had those thoughts. 
and whether you've ever made a plan to do something about those thoughts. Have you ever done something before that you've tried to um, kill yourself or hurt yourself? Is anybody you know in the family that's um, suicided? Try and do use words like suicided or completed rather than committed. I think we've gone beyond suicide being a crime that you commit now. And I think it's it's more about, actually, most suicides in young people are impetuous. So there's quite a few young people who may have had low mood for quite a while, or actually not at all. But they felt, um, you know, there's quite a few suicides in young people where everybody says, oh, I never, you know, that came out of the blue. I thought they were fine. And they're ducks the school and they're doing this and that and everybody loves them and bingo because we don't listen to what's inside and they're struggling inside and they're struggling to please you as well parents don't realize that teenagers really are trying to please them quite a lot of them do and I think we don't listen we just go oh they're great fantastic I don't have to worry that's awesome because I knew this would be a worrying time but it's great mine's doing good you know and they don't listen to really what's um, going on inside or give them an opportunity to, to frame them because they're always expecting them to do the best and encouraging them to, which is great. I mean, there's nothing wrong in that, but you've got to bring some balance and realize that, you know, doing your best is incredibly tiring, especially when all that brain development is going on at the same time. It's exhausting. So that's what we should be doing as doctors with our patients too, in terms of, giving them the opportunity to try and express themselves, even if it's not coming out very well. And then you fit all the other contextual stuff around it. So you're dealing with the presenting complexity, you're not losing time, but you're putting that context around it. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think often it's seen as a tick box tool. And, you know, often um, we've asked about the asthma in a very logical way and then we go oh my goodness they're a young person we should do a heads yeah and then we go oh we've got three minutes left let's just give it a go and then it becomes a very awkward tool and a very dysfunctional tool and actually I think it erodes the rapport that you may have built you may not have but if you've built rapport and you then start firing off these random questions Mm. I don't think it's particularly helpful yeah that's right so, so I suppose thinking about assessing a young person and, you know, we were taught, as you say, in medical school to make sure that you've discussed confidentiality and the parameters around that. How do you deal with, with that when you are doing a young person consultation and thinking about a heads consultation? Because you are asking about things that may be illegal or there may be some harm. Tell us how you, how you do that. Well, number one, I don't differentiate between illegal and legal because for a young person, they're not interested in that either. They just want the good stuff out of the drug, whatever, whether it's legal or not. Second thing is, I think it's important to kind of engage with them first before I feel anyway, it's important to engage with them first before you're doing the formal confidentiality chat, because then that confidentiality stuff comes out of the kind of situation that they've described. Because otherwise, my feeling is that they're not going to tell you the situation if they feel you're going to tell someone. So I try and frame it so that they've come up with, you know, something that's happening that's not good and you're feeling concerned. Check with them that they know you're feeling concerned because often they'll see your face and interpret as anger and that you're angry with them, not concerned about them. And that 
that really ruins the rapport, especially when you're talking about this risky stuff. And then saying to them, well, look, I'm really concerned about, you know, what's going on for you. I'm really worried that you're in, you know, you're in a serious situation. I'm going to have to tell somebody else so that I can help you better. And mostly they say yes to that because they know you can't do it all yourself. Um, Sometimes they'll say, no, you can't. And I say, well, look, I really feel I have to because this is a really serious situation for you. I will tell the person with you in the room so you know what I've said. If there's something you really don't want me to say, you know, let's talk about that and let's agree on what you want me to say. And I'll try and keep within that. But I really need to get better help for you than I can provide. And so I had one patient and um, she said, you can't tell my mum. Anyway, so we talked, we talked about the situation. We talked about the fact that she'd already tried to throw herself under a bus. Her friends had dragged her in to see us. And actually, she'd been to see us a couple of times before for the pill, but never told us how bad she felt. And so I said to her, have you told your mum how bad you're feeling? Oh, no, no, she's too busy. She, she, she hasn't got the time. So I said, well, how about we tell your mum together? How about we ring her so that she knows how bad you're feeling? And maybe she could help. Oh, do you think so? And she, we ummed and ah for ages. And it did take a long time, which was, you know, it's hard in a general practice, but you know, sometimes it's worth it. And hopefully that's where it's good to work in a team and somebody else can see the people waiting to see you. Um, and so we rang the mum together. Mum came immediately. There was big sobbing, lots of hugging, and, you know, situation resolved. Doesn't always work out as well as that, obviously. But at the same time, you know, doing it with the young person is so helpful because you're role modelling for them. They've never been in this situation before. And they haven't got that experience to build on. So you've got heaps of experience which you can share with them. It's not their experience, but maybe you can role model some solution kind of negotiation and working it out. So I like to bring up the confidentiality thing as things come up. And with the HEADS framework, it's, it's really in two parts. There's the chatty bit, the home, education, employment, exercise, eating activities. Um, and then there's the more risky, the behavior bit. And for me, you do the chatty bit in two minutes introduction. You don't really have to cover all the letters, but you need to cover what they're doing and their living situation. But the risky bit, if they don't present with it, you really need to bring it in. And the two most important things to bring in are mental health. So are they distressed? Are they ill? Or are they maintaining their health well? And obviously sleep comes into that. And actually I put diet into that in terms of, you know, how's your mood? You have more good days than bad days. And how's your sleep? And are you eating? And I, that's where I put eating rather than in the intro bit. And then the second thing is while you're here, if you're aspirin inhaler or whatever, unless they're coming for sexual health, would you like me to talk about um, whether you're having sex or not, who you want to have sex with, what gender you feel you are, whether you'd like to check up on contraception or, or STIs? I find that while you're here, is a great phrase because not only does it make it less embarrassing and they don't have to ask, but they can say, oh, actually, yeah, I was going to say that, but I wasn't sure how to start. Or they say, hmm, in their heads, this person knows how to talk about sex because they're doing it so matter-of-factly. I'll make a point to come back to them to talk about this stuff. And I had one 
young person, they came to see me three times for an asthma inhaler and really didn't have to, but they were sussing me out to then break the news about they felt they were gay, you know? So there's all this sussing out on both sides that's happening. And it doesn't matter if you don't ask for everything, but I think it's really important you ask about mental health, mental distress, because there's so much distress around. And it's really important to ask, you know, as a screening thing about sexuality and, and, and contraception and stuff. Because, like I said, if, even if they don't talk about it right there and then, it's a flag. You're saying, I'm here and I'm happy. I think in the chit-chat, some people call it ch- cheds or, um, or, or, or um, in terms of making sure you, in the home bit, talk about culture. Because so many Māori young people are ashamed of their culture because their parents are. And they never learnt te reo or the parents never learnt te reo. And some parents, you know, are putting their kids into kohanga reo and into um, immersion schools, but so many aren't because they feel the shame themselves because they never learnt. And I think it's really important to link kids in with their culture. Well, and often they don't want to. But if you gradually introduce it as part of the corridor at the beginning, you're socialising it and saying, ah, you know, I, I see you're Māori according to your notes here. Do you know which iwi you're from? And a lot do now. It's great. Um, even in the South Island, which is amazing. And um, have you learned Tereo? Because I'm trying to learn Tereo. I wonder whether you're learning Tereo and kind of, kind of introducing it like that. Um, and I think linking kids with their culture, whether it be Māori or whether it be um, Ethiopian, Samoan, whatever, acknowledging where their families come from and where they come from, because a lot of kids are between two cultures, and that's a really difficult place to be. And don't forget when you're asking about home, a lot of kids have three homes. So they have a home with mum, a home with dad, a home with their friends for weekends. So really be aware and open to the diversity of young people who are coming because it's way more diverse than it ever used to be. I think that's really important. And the other thing is that people often can sometimes call it sheds. And the idea is that to remind you that you're using a strengths-based approach. You're not looking for the deficits and the risks. Well, you are but you've also got to look for the things that are important to them and their strengths. Never ask a Kiwi young person, what are your strengths? What answer you, you normally get the answer of? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, so if you are thinking about those strengths, how would you frame that? And why is it important to ask about those sorts of things? The safety and strengths are the last two S's. So there's, the S is a, a sexuality, um, spirituality, culture, suicide, but really that's assessing mental health, mental illness. And then um, I've added significant events because I think it's really important to look for adverse child experiences, but also protective child experiences. So the adverse child experiences we know from the San Diego study and from our own Otago cohort study that Usually there's about 10, some people have added more in terms of natural disasters and bullying at school and all those kind of things. Um, but being a victim of any kind of violence, whether it be emotional, verbal, physical or sexual, watching another person in your whanau being, being a victim of violence is probably almost as bad. And having an absent parent, whether they're absent because of their mental health or their addiction or work, they're just not there or they're in jail. So 
we know that those have consequences, neurodevelopmental consequences, health behavior consequences, your constant adrenaline is actually probably the source of most of our modern day diseases in terms of cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, gastrointestinal, breathing even, and early death with your immune suppression with cortisol production constantly. So really, really important to look for those. And I call it significant events because if you're just looking at those, it's really negative. People feel terrible telling you about their worst things happening in their childhood. So if you, that I don't do this on the first on the first expression, although I try to say has just broadly, has anything bad happened in your life so far? Has anything good happened in your life so far? And then give examples. So the examples, obviously, of the bad stuff will be any violence and all that kind of thing. The good example, and you kind of get that anyway from asking about home and who's at home and what's happened to dad if he's not there and that kind of stuff. And then asking about the, 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 the two last letters are safety in terms of summing up all the things that have gone wrong. They've been bullied at school. They don't have any support. Their family don't talk to them. They're feeling low, you know, summing up all the bad things. And then strength is summing up all good things. You've got a best friend at school you can talk to. Your auntie's really helpful and you can go to her at weekends for a bit of TLC. Um, you are a member of the netball group and that's going really well. And you volunteer on the Mariah weekends or, you know, those kind of summing up of the good things. Because we know those protective factors actually are really good at stopping the effects of the risk factors. Yep. No, that makes perfect sense. And so when you are assessing these young people and something comes up that you're worried about as a clinician, and often we get those sort of feelings where you just feel not comfortable about letting this young person go from your room and you mentioned the depressed young person how do you what do you do at that point i usually first of all find out who their supports are whether it's somebody at school whether it be the school counselor whether it be an auntie and i try and ask permission to ring them especially school counselors i ring school counselors quite a lot or give them um you know the clinic phone number to give to their school counselor to ring then or emails then I um, get them back early. And that's hard in general practice because you have to charge them. We have a free service that's so much easier. And we can get them back in a week or two weeks. And I usually say to them, when would you like to come back? And a lot of them say, oh, next week, please. And they know it's free, so it's easier. But you know, I think it's really important to keep close tabs. But if you can't keep close tabs, get them to see the nurse. Or... Um, try and find out if there's a youth worker in the area. And I think if you're a general if you're GP, try and find out the local youth workers. Because if you can, um, I, I actually think we should have youth workers attached to every general practice because the youth workers are the ones that do the mahi. They're the ones that get them into groups. They're the ones that get them into a sport and walk alongside them and make sure that they know that somebody cares about them much more easily and readily and frequently than GPs can. So that's I find that will be really helpful for GPs if they could do that. And so thinking about doing these assessments, you know, we've been it's been suggested again in our training that we should be doing them without the parents in the room. And, you know, that can create a little bit of angst for a um an overbearing parent perhaps. How do you suggest 
that we remove the parent from the room so that we do get the best information. What are your what are your tricks there? Really good point. So what I usually do, because you, you actually want to see them with their parent because you want to see what that relationship's like, because that's really important. So I usually say, as I'm walking into the from the waiting room, I say, Oh hi Johnny, who have you brought with you today? Oh hi mum. And we're going to chuck you out halfway through, aren't we? So I kind of make it a bit of a joke in the introduction. And then what I do I think it's very much clinical judgment. So you're watching that interaction between them. And sometimes it's really obvious that the young person really needs their parent there because their confidence is really low. And sometimes I'll just let it go and just say, hey, next time, maybe you can come see me on your own. Now that you know who I am and we've had a bit of a corridor. But often you do need to ask the parent to leave. So what I do is I say, Thanks so much, Mum, for coming, because without you, we wouldn't have heard about the past stuff and maybe the medications Johnny's on. But now he needs to learn to talk to me on his own because you're not always going to be able to come with him. So it's really important he learns to talk to me on his own. So would you mind leaving for five minutes while he learns that skill? And that's a developmental opportunity that no parent likes to turn down in front of the doctor because they look really bad. And so... um, I find that's the best way of doing it. I mean, you can say, can you leave while I examine them all? But that just, it often backfires on you, especially a really intense helicopter parent. So I think putting that as a developmental opportunity is really helpful. Or you can just say, this practice has this policy that we always talk to parents and child separately or blame government or whatever. But I find the developmental opportunity one is a really, a really good way of doing it. The other thing um, also is that I've had feedback from young people saying, please don't ask my parent to leave because they give me the third degree in the car going home and I hate it. So you've got to put it all into the mix of it. Um, And as I say, it's a clinical judgment. If you have asked them to leave, I think it's really helpful if you can negotiate with the young person, what are you going to tell mum about the visit, about what we've talked about? And then say, Perhaps we should get her in now so she doesn't give you the third degree in the, in the car. And what, would you, what should we tell her? And agree on that together. Um, because it's really important the young person knows that you are their advocate, not their parents. So negotiating what to tell her. But it's really important for mum to know. Because the other thing that can happen in the consult is that you can role model to mum or parent or caregiver, whoever's come, how to talk to their young person. Because that's what you're trying to teach them. So if you can teach them that negotiation style, it's really helpful for the young person. So sometimes it's good to have them both and you, you do that role modeling and teaching parents how to do the parenting bit. Because, you know, it's, often parents will use the same techniques as they used when they were two and it just doesn't work. It's really helpful for the parent because nobody's told them that they don't have, you know, it's, so it's quite helpful to keep them in. Um, I had one young person come in with her mum and mum had found out, mum had brought her in because she'd found out that she'd been raped by somebody in the village where they lived. Daughter hadn't told her for two years, but it eventually came out. And so mum had been around the traps, gone to everywhere. And nobody had included mum in terms of how to manage the situation from here. And we just did our normal and got mum back in. So thank you so much. It's, it's so helpful for me to learn how to cope with this situation. So thank you. And so I think, you know, it's really important to bring parents back in too. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, so we've spoken to our young person, summed it up, got mum back in. What do we do now? We've got all this information. What do we do with it? Well, um, that's heads part two. Uh, in terms of, <laughs> I often say um, you get the information to use against them. I mean, to help them change. <laughs> because that nicely leads into motivational interviewing. And um, my mnemonic, for mo- actually given to me by a sixth-year medical student, I rearranged the letters in the motivational interviewing kind of mnemonic to beards. So be bite your tongue. Do not tell the young person, actually, or an adult, what to do, but especially a young person because everybody's telling them what to do all the time. So try and avoid that and then express empathy. Try and think what it's like to think with your emotions. Try and think what it's like to think like they do in terms of what you've estimated as their cognitive developmental level. Um, do they have much future thinking? How complex? How conceptual? And that try and think like that and, and how they would see this situation. And then avoid argument. So the way I do it is I just, um, we have just agreed to get to differ. So that's your point of view, that it's okay to take two crates of beer to the party. My point of view is that I think that's quite dangerous in that you do things you regret and um, you might find it really hard not to drink all that much alcohol. And then um, roll with resistance is Rolneck and Miller's phrase. I think I'd rather put the R in as reflect. So reflect on where you've got to reflect because that and the information they've given you. And then that leads really nicely to deploy discrepancy. So on the one hand, it's quite expensive for you to smoke all this cannabis. But on the other hand, it makes you feel kind of like on top of the world and you don't get so angry anymore and it's really helpful. So, but what have you noticed about the bad stuff about cannabis? What have you noticed about the good stuff? And when they say, there's nothing bad, you say, well, how's your memory been lately? (laughs) Um, And what's your energy levels like? And, you know, connect up the dots. Oh, Mm -hmm. is that related to cannabis? Oh, and then... The most important bit about beards and the whole process of trying to get them to think about the situation, which is what you're trying to do, is then support self-efficacy. So what will you do tomorrow about cannabis or sexual health or whatever it is you're trying to to change? And don't don't try and change them. You cannot. So I always end up with, but it's your choice, it's your life. But how can we help you and support you in making some great decisions? Excellent, Sue. Just to put, just to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? I think, first of all, realise that young people are developing. Try and assess where they've got to in their development, but make sure that as with increasing capacity, you acknowledge emotion and you acknowledge the fact that they're actually intelligent people, mostly, um, so long as they haven't been too delayed by life happening to them. And Try and talk to them at the level they're at rather than your level. But most importantly, don't talk down. Use lots of pictures and make it a conversation. Listen. Wonderful. Thanks, Sue. It's been an absolute pleasure. Please go to our website, goodfellowunit.org, where you'll find a list of resources used in making this podcast. You can also access some webinars, med cases, and learning modules. Thanks for listening today.